1: Okay, so you're working on a task. Maybe you're cooking dinner. You're trying to focus on some work. You may be even reading a book and then do you pick up your phone to check what it's about? Yeah, you probably do. And then one thing leads to another, and suddenly you've lost 30 minutes scrolling through Instagram. A report from Common Sense Media found that teens get over 230 of these distracting notifications each day, and some get over 4,500. But kids aren't the only ones inundated. According to market research company Insider Intelligence, American adults spend around four and a half hours daily on their phones. Smartphones and social media apps have been criticized for their addictive design. Just this year, lawmakers in Utah, New Jersey, and North Carolina have taken action to protect kids from the reach of social media apps. Today, we're taking a look at how we use our phones. How are we affected by the constant presence of our phones? And what can we do to claim back our focus? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to get into. Stay with us.
0: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel.
1: Let's get into the conversation. Joining us is Manoush Zamarodi. Manoush is host of NPR's TED Radio Hour and the new series, Body Electric. It's investigating the relationship between our technology and our bodies. She's also the author of Bored and Brilliant, How Spacing Out Can Unlock Your Most Creative Self. Manoush, welcome
2: back. Shan, it's so good to be back. Thank you.
1: And joining us from Seattle is Dr. Lucia Mahis weinberg She's an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Washington, where she leads the International Adolescent Connection and Technology Laboratory. Lucia, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Delighted to be here. And here in studio is Amanda Linhart. She's the head of research at Common Sense Media. That's a nonprofit that researches the impact of media and technology. She also serves on an advisory panel to the American Academy of Pediatrics Center on Social Media and Youth Mental Health. Amanda, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the findings in the recent report from Common Sense Media, which revealed that teens received hundreds of notifications a day. Amanda, you're a co-op author of this study, which collected data from 11 to 17-year-olds to see how exactly they were using their phones and how they felt about it. What did you learn?
3: Yeah, so that number that you're sharing, the 237 notifications a day, was one of the main findings of the report. And we found really that the phone is a constant companion for young people. It's with them all the time. They use it on average about five hours a day, similar actually to adults. They also um, pick up their phone a lot, not just when they're getting notified, but just um, on their own sort of instigation. And that happens about 72 times on average per day. Um, and notifications are, you know, they happen all the time, right? So they're not just they're not just at night. They happen during school. About a twenty five percent of notifications come in during the school day. About five percent of notifications come in between midnight and five a.m. What we call the overnight hours during the school school nights. So these notifications really are um, pervasive in the lives of adolescents. Um, and, and a part of that's because they represent people they care about a lot of the time. So it's very difficult to um, to turn them off. And we can talk more about that. But I think th- those, that was probably one of the main findings of the report.
1: We got this message from a member of the 1A Text Club who writes, I leave my phone on mute. However, it's difficult to ignore the messages icon if I do reach forward while I'm writing, but I will power through telling myself they can wait. Now, I am... Someone who has turned off most of the notifications on my phone. I typically leave my phone on mute for a number of reasons. But Lucia, there was a study published last year in the peer reviewed journal Computers and Human Behavior. It found that silencing notifications made users more likely to check their phone. And <laughs> that's very upsetting for me. How does the mere presence of a phone affect our focus?
4: Um yeah I think from from the field of studying habits we know that there's triggers in their environment that uh, can make us think about the habit that we're trying to suppress and I think that very much applies to our phones right um it's an environmental reminder that there's something that we might have a desire to go check it sort of puts is, puts it in our prospective memory like a task for what we need to do in the future um, so, our brains are constantly keeping track of things that they want to do in the future, right whether it 's uh picking up something from the supermarket later on. Well, the same happens when we have this um, environmental trigger uh, reminding us okay there's something on their phone that you should get to next right so that's that activates uh prospective memory on our on our brains well, sometimes a distraction
1: is what we are looking for when we turn to our phones. We got this message from a member of the text club who writes when i 'm anxious and can 't sleep, I scroll to avoid my thoughts. Amanda, the Common Sense Media report found that teens turn to apps when they wanted to get relief from negative emotions. Talk us through that finding.
3: Yeah, we found that uh, um, certainly that was a major thing that young people use this for. And I think also to come to the sleep question, we heard from young people that they do turn to apps um, late at night for a variety of reasons. Sometimes um, it's because it's the only time in the day when they really have to themselves with all the things that they have going on, which I think adults can absolutely identify with as well. Um, and so they find that, that that's the moment in time where they want to spend time with the apps that they enjoy. And sometimes that's TikTok, which is very activating and can keep them awake. But sometimes it's something like YouTube or music where it's actually helping them to calm down. Mm-hmm. So there's really, I think, a tension in terms of what the effect is of the different apps young people are using when they're looking for this moment of relief or calmness or um, or pleasure, frankly.
1: Well, we got lots of messages from you. One person writes, I probably do sit and look at my laptop for too long. I try to get up and walk around every fifteen to twenty minutes and spend at least ten minutes each hour doing something more active. And another of you writes, I force myself to get up and walk around, do some push ups or call a friend. I know staring at the screen all day is bad for my eyes, my posture and my mental health. Manouche, how does the amount of time we spend sitting in front of a screen affect our physical bodies?
2: Yeah, that is what I've been trying to figure out with this new series that we're doing called Body Electric. So this is a six part series looking at the impact of our technology on our physical well-being. And uh, those people who say that they are getting up every 15 to 20 minutes, I mean, they are on to something. So I went and spent uh, time in a lab at Columbia University where they are studying the minimum amount of movement that we need in our day to mitigate the effects of sitting on our laptops uh, for hours on end, which a lot of us do. And the gold standard that they have found in the lab is that we need to move for five minutes every half hour. And we're not talking about like doing jumping jacks. We're talking about a, a two mile per hour gentle stroll or walking around your house and collecting all the dirty bugs that are left <laughs> around, just moving every half hour, which is hard to do. That's yeah. that's another interruption, right? If you feel like you're in the flow and doing work, that, that's annoying. So we have asked listeners uh, to try to join a study we're doing actually NPR and Columbia University to see if we can change this sort of mindset we have of sitting being the default in our lives. We've had over 20,000 people sign up to be part of the study. So I, I we'll see how it goes. It's going to be taking place over the next three weeks. I'm, I'm very curious what kind of hacks people come up with to get regular movement into their lives if they're not used to that.
1: Well, here's another message from a member of the 1A Text Club. I think there's an important distinction to be made between general screen time and time spent on social media. While it's wise to keep all screen time to a minimum, I believe there's a corrosive effect that social media has on emotional wellness, particularly in younger people. Lucia, we'll talk about the effects of social media on well-being in a moment. But first, how much of a distinction should we make in the type of screen time we engage in?
4: Um, Very much. Uh, I think we have been pushing to go beyond this concept of screen time, which is not very useful in terms of understanding people's lives online, which is one of the things I like so much about this common sense report, which is really trying to get at more of the content and have more granularity of what young people are doing online. Because definitely not all activities online are the same. Um, So, yes, we need to really understand content, we need to understand what people are doing, and we need to do it with much more granularity because, as we know, people are changing so quickly uh, the activities they're doing on their phone, probably over 10, 15 seconds, that just screen time doesn't really capture all that nuance.
1: We're going to head to a quick break with this message we got from one of you. My spouse and I already had the quote-unquote come-to-Jesus talk when she showed me our vacation photos and I was staring at my phone in every single picture. Coming up, what our close relationship with our phones is doing to our sleeping habits. Back with more in a moment.
0: This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy: family, work, living a fuller life. TeleDoc Health understands whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight. TeleDoc Health can help. Visit TeleDocHealth.com/what'syourwhy for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health/slash What's Your Why. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside.
4: In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories,
1: Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation. Teens receive hundreds, if not thousands, of phone app notifications a day, and they're struggling to manage their relationship with their phone. Lucia, you're in Seattle. In January, Seattle Public Schools filed a lawsuit against multiple social media companies, including Snapchat, TikTok, and YouTube. They say companies' conduct, quote, has been a substantial factor in causing a youth mental health crisis, end quote. Now, studies find that prolonged screen time isn't great for our mental health, but what do we know about how social media in particular affects young people's emotional well-being?
4: Um, yeah, and, and I think this comes out in the report uh, as well. Uh, double, uh, social media is a double edged sword almost, with a lot of positive uh, impact for youth in terms of a great source of social support and connection. But also, of course, some uh, negative uh, impacts as well. We know um, it can facilitate social comparison, which can lead people to feel worse about themselves. It can be a source of digital stress as well. And, of course, a big disruptor of sleep, which we know is such a a cornerstone in our mental health and our well-being. So, yeah, a very... Mixed, uh, mixed impact with a lot of positives, but negatives as well.
1: When we also think about the developing brain of adolescents, does that matter in the way screen time affects children as opposed to adults?
4: So, so very much. There's key developments that happen in adolescence. Adolescents are very sensitive to their social environments. Adolescents are very sensitive to being popular and having status and seeing what the popular kids are doing and how can I become popular. Adolescence is a time of exploration, of autonomy, of wanting to do things on your own. And also a time in which we're developing this ability to regulate our behavior, to control our impulses. So I think social media features uniquely, appeal, the way it's designed, uniquely appeal to many of these developmental tasks of adolescents. And if it's hard for us as adults to, to ask us to regulate our behavior, we're hearing from callers to the show of how much it's a struggle for all of us to regulate our behavior. Well, it's going to be even harder for, for children and adolescents who are still developing many of these skills.
1: We got this email from Michael who says, how much difference does sitting versus standing make? My wife used to work from home during COVID and sat for eight hours a day. We switched her to a standing desk and she reports feeling much better. Manush, what have you learned?
2: Uh, well, that's interesting. So if the standing desk is working for you, please, you know, stick with it. However, having talked to physiologists at Columbia, there is the, the, the verdict is out on standing desk. Standing for long periods of time can actually cause its own problems. And standing at a standing desk does not uh, replace this movement that is needed throughout our day. So uh, like I said, if if standing works for you, great, but it's the movement, it's the getting the muscles uh, pumping and flowing that actually is going to reduce your blood sugar levels, that is going to bring down your blood pressure, that is also going to reduce stress and improve your mood. Um, So... I have to break it to you, also Jen, that working out in the morning and then sitting all day—it's uh, also not great. Like, don't get rid of your workout. But I know it's not fair, is it? It's don't not your workout because <laughs> I have to get up really early
1: to work out in the morning.
2: <laughs> no, I know, but you still need those movement breaks so that you don't sit on your butt all day. And I will say, having gone through that that laboratory thing. The difference, not only in my my blood sugar was cut by half the day that I moved every half hour, my blood pressure was down by five points. But also I rated the quality of my work that day, which really surprised me, at 40% better. Mm-hmm. So – uh, the data showed I had a better day when I included some movement, even if I felt guilty for not sitting and grinding.
1: Mm. Well, we got this message from another member of the 1A Text Club. Doom scrolling and constant information is probably my biggest issue. I signed up for the Columbia University Screen Time Study. Now, as you said, Manoush, TED Radio Hour is partnering with Columbia University Medical Center to research. How being active can offset the amount of time we sit looking at our phone or computer. We've talked about the physicality, but what about the information overload? How does that affect us?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, so this is in an upcoming episode that has not come out yet, but I, I hope people will listen. We talk about this idea. Of- interoception. And I speak to a psychiatrist and neuroscientist um, at the Laureate Institute for Brain Research. Um, so interoception is our sixth sense. It's how our nervous system senses and interprets and integrates information about how we're doing inside our body. So, you know, you you pack some nuts so because you, you know that maybe you're going to get hangry later, right? Well, I think what they're learning is that all this input that we get all the sensations we feel when we go on the internet the outrage the anger the sadness um it can take over our bodies to the point that we feel overwhelmed and physically impacts us um and so one of the suggestions they have is getting yourself into a place every day where it's a sensory free zone Lying in the dark with the door closed in silence, uh, no notifications at all, no dog. Um, that there's a reset that needs to happen so that you can regulate yourself. Um, we also look into this um, this uh, TikTok phenomenon that happened last year, where thousands of teens across the globe started exhibiting Tourette's like symptoms, and and why why it brings up so many questions. Are teens particularly vulnerable to behavioral prompts online? Or is this epidemic comparable to other emotional contagions that have happened in the past, like the dancing plague that happened in the 1500s where people literally danced themselves to death? So clearly some people are more vulnerable and need to be extra, extra cautious. But I just want to add one thing, Jen. I'm, I'm laughing because we got a note from my son's high school the other day that said, parents, please stop texting and calling your kids during the day. Mm. It's very disruptive. So this is a, a parent-child combo thing that we need to talk about. It, it, there's a conversation that needs to happen in every home. We're trying to have it in my house every day. <laughs>
1: well, Amanda, I see you nodding yeah. very vigorously. Yeah. Go ahead.
3: Yeah. I mean, notifications aren't just from your buddies. They are parental controls telling you to get off the phone. They are your parents texting you to say, hey, don't forget you got to go to the orthodontist. They are the system notifying you of something. So it's a it's a lot of different things that are uh, coming up and distracting you during the day. Wow.
1: Manushin, you're reporting, what have you learned about how intentional some of these addictive features are in social media apps.
2: I mean, it's a game we play too, Jan. as journalists, right? Mm -hmm. The world is so fractured. There's so many places vying for our attention. And so if you have the ability to manipulate it with design... Unfortunately, that's the, the capitalist marketplace that we have built with a lot of this. And so it is on the user to make their decisions, like turning off those notifications. But I will say, I, one of the most helpful things that helped in my family was when our pediatrician said, there needs to be an hour of no screens before you turn out the lights to go to sleep. Having a medical practitioner say that, you know, she's like, you brush your teeth, you wear a seatbelt you need to not look at screens an hour before sleep. That had a huge effect on my kids.
1: Mm. And before we let you go briefly, Manush, we mentioned the study TED Radio Hour and Body Electric is doing with Columbia University Medical Center. What are you hoping to learn?
2: I am hoping to learn how people decide uh, when they're, I worry that we are, get so negative. We're like, oh, too much screen time, too many notifications. Well, let's talk about what we should be doing instead. Let's reclaim mind wandering. I'm just sitting here and thinking. Or instead of saying she got too much st- screen time, let's say, did you get enough stroll time? Mm. Did you walk outside? And what's on the horizon? Did you see any birds today? I know it sounds so like hokey a little bit, but I'm really curious to hear how... Uh, teachers and work from home cohorts and offices of people start to integrate movement and eye contact and conversation into their lives, they're going to find weird ways to do it. I can't wait to hear if it works. And if it doesn't work, Jen, that's just as valuable. We need to know uh, what our scientists, if this doesn't work, these interruptions every half hour, we need to go back to the drawing board Mm -hmm. and figure out what can work because we are in a slow moving health crisis, both mentally and physically.
1: That's Manoush Zamarodi, the host of NPR's TED Radio Hour and the new series Body Electric. You can follow along with the series by subscribing to the TED Radio Hour podcast feed. Manoush, thanks so much. Jen, such a pleasure. Thank you. And let's bring a new voice into the conversation. Dr. Clifford Sussman is a child and adolescent psychiatrist in Washington, D.C., focused on internet and gaming behaviors. Clifford, thanks for joining us.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Clifford, you've been in private practice for over 15 years now, and you've focused on internet and gaming use for the past seven years. How was your practice affected by the pandemic
5: when many of us spent more time in front of a screen? Uh, Well, the demand for my services went way up uh, to the point where I had to get out and start training other clinicians because there weren't enough people around to handle the huge demand for kids who were just struggling with uh, way too much device use. And there was struggling beforehand. There was a lot of kids dropping out of their first year of college because that year was so unstructured for them and they weren't prepared to handle that lack of structure. But when you take a pandemic and a lockdown and you put people in a home environment where there's no structure and there's social isolation, so the devices are you know, replacing their social life as well um, and, and giving them a way to to, to stay in touch with others. Uh, It just became um, a huge problem with people just getting uh, carried away with too many hours and it it having many negative impacts on their life. And so I started getting um, many more uh, teenage clients, high school clients who are struggling and younger kids. In your
1: experience, how important is it in a family setting for there to be some rules about how everyone (laughs) approaches phone use and screen
5: time, not just the teens, but... The parents as well. It's very important. Uh, parents model behaviors for their kids. I talk a lot about cues because cues are a huge concept in addiction. And kids um, do what they see their parents doing because what they see their parents doing is a cue for their own behaviors. And cues are what uh, are a major factor when when um, when an alcoholic walks into a bar and they see the sights, sounds, and smells of the bar. Uh, they start to release the, the uh, neurotransmitter dopamine, the, 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 transmit, the neurotransmitter that release we release when we get what we want when we want it. They start to get to release that before they've even had their first drink. And the same thing happens when a kid sees somebody else on a phone or when they walk into a room filled with devices. We're going to take a quick break here. When we return, we discuss tips on how to cut
6: down on your screen time. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside.
1: Let's get back to the discussion with this message we got from one of you. I'm worried about how much time I spend on games. I've deleted the game when I'm trying to be good, and then something stressful happens, and I download it again. I don't smoke or drink, but this is definitely an addiction. I turn to it immediately for stress relief. And another of you shares, I'm addicted. I try to control it, but it's tough when I use it. For work, and we've got lots of messages along this lines. People feeling addicted to their phones. Clifford, internet gaming disorder is now included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, and that's the authoritative uh, psychiatric guide to mental disorders.
5: Internet or gaming addiction has not been included. Why not? Well, uh, so so just to clarify, it's in the it's in the section three of the DSM. Internet gaming disorder, so it's not an official diagnosis yet. It's a condition require, requiring further study. And I think the reason why they don't include social media addiction and internet addiction. Uh, and make it just internet gaming disorder specifically is just because that's where the most data is. Mm -hmm. So I don't want people to think that, you know, there's something, there's a completely different brain effect that gaming has that these other types of immediate gratification that you can get from a device has.
1: And, And how much research is being done into how
5: using apps, gaming, how the effect it has on our brain. Is there enough study in that area right now? Not nearly enough. There's a lot being done, but we need a lot more, and we need a lot more on treatment, which is, you know, where I focus a lot of my career. Um, But, you know, there's also the World Health Organization, and they have gaming disorder, which is, that is an official diagnosis now. However, we go by the ICD-10 right now when we're, when we're, uh, sending a diagnosis to an insurance company, and the ICD-11 is not out yet. It's not being used yet. And gaming disorder will be in the ICD-11. And
1: and what does having an official diagnosis in, in the DSM, why does it matter for insurance?
5: Well, because disorders are based on problems in your life. They're based on dysfunction, right? And so um, if you... Uh, if without without uh, putting a, a name to it, without having something that you can code for, um, you can't really speak to how much your your patient is struggling from this problem. And so, what what doctors will do instead is they'll put um, another diagnosis on uh, the invoice to get reimbursement from insurance, such as ADHD or anxiety disorder. And those diagnoses are true as well, but it's very hard to address those problems. Uh, you get it's very hard to access treating somebody's ADHD or anxiety or their autism if you have uh, just constant screen use and all the, um, the problems that, that go with it.
1: We got this email from one of you. The word addiction keeps coming up. Please mention Media Addicts Anonymous if it wasn't mentioned already. We heard that from a number of you. Lucia, you don't use the term addiction when describing problematic phone or screen use. Why not?
4: Well, I think it's a term we want to be very careful with. I don't think it's uh, a good label that describes uh, the reality for most of us. Uh, yes, uh, many of us like use the phones more than we want, use them in absent-minded ways. Uh, but for something to really be an addiction, it has to exert profound dysfunction uh, in a person's life. So uh, I'm sure that's true for a small minority of of youth, the clients that, that Clifford sees in his practice. But for for many of us, I think it would fall more in the remit of a bad habit, right? Something that we want to control, that we want to change. Uh, but it it doesn't really uh, create the dysfunction that other types of addictions can create, where people just stop sleeping, stop going to school, lose friends, start lying, uh, hiding their, their use, right? That, that That is true, but for a smaller... Uh, percent of people, not for everyone.
1: And in terms of where you'd like to see more research done on the effect of screen time and phones and apps, the effect it has on our brains, where do you think the research needs to go?
4: Um... Yeah, so I think we need to be much more specific, right? And if it's social media that we're interested in, we need to start looking at the mechanisms, right? Is it the idea that I can connect with my friends that I, when I'm lonely? Is that the mechanism that we want to look at and that effect of... and and how that relates to our brains, our psychologies. Uh, Does it have to do with digital stress or with problematic media use? We need to be much more specific in our mechanisms, just going beyond screen time or just general device use.
1: Now, you mentioned digital stress. That's the first time that's come up in the conversation. What is that?
4: So so that's one of the things we study in, in our lab, and it's this very useful term to encompass many of the things that we have been talking about. So, for example, uh, FOMO, or what we hear a lot from young people, which is availability stress. And young people tell us, well, yes, I should be sleeping, but I'm concerned that if my friend is struggling through the night and she sends me a notification and I don't respond, I'm concerned for my friend's well-being, right? So young people feel the need to be constantly available. They feel this overload of information all of the time. There's a lot of approval anxiety, right? Are people going to like the posts that I that I put there? Uh, what I, what is the feedback I'm going to get? Um so there's all these different aspects of digital stress that, that we all struggle with and, and young people particularly.
1: I mean Clifford, what I hear from Lucia there, and I'm wondering if it shows up in your clients, is this weird space we've created where we are we feel this need to be constantly connected to the world, to one another. Yeah. And there are ways to do it, but it can come at personal cost. How do you talk to your patients about how to navigate that space.
5: Yeah. I mean, I really try to emphasize the importance of in real life socializing and that you can, you can certainly uh, get a lot of um, social benefits from using devices and a lot of connection, but it's not the same kind of connection as real life connection, and it's not a replacement for real life connection. And so I really try to, to talk about a balance. You know, and this isn't just for people who are, who are having all these severe problems. It's, I talk to schools and parents all over about, you know, healthy use in general and preventative ways to, to approach this where, you know, you're giving kids a balance between what I would call high dopamine activities, activities that, like I said, are instantly and continuously giving you what you want and when you want it. And activities that require more patience, like the strolling, uh, the stroll time that, that was mentioned earlier on the show, but also things like playing a musical instrument and uh, doing arts and crafts and doing exercise, doing homework as well. But I, I don't want parents just to think in terms of how productive activities are, but also the effect they have on the brain in terms of are they requiring our kids to, to use patience
1: Clifford, a big part of your work is teaching approaches to healthy screen use. What are some techniques that work?
5: Well, uh, there's there's three areas I focus on a lot. One is having a lot of structure. So if you have a structured activity that's low dopamine or at least requires a little more patience, like uh, going to a soccer game and, you know, and the game lasts three hours, that's three hours you don't have to worry about your kid getting on a phone usually. And, you know... I like parents to use an actual schedule for their kids' activities and to plan out the day ahead of time. Um, I also talk a lot about, as I said, having cues, and that means also uh, thinking of the house The home environment in terms of like what are the cues in that environment and can we have zones in the house, like a high dopamine zone and a low dopamine zone. In other words, maybe you can have like an arcade room in the house where all the screens go. There's no law that just because you can carry a cell phone anywhere or a laptop or a tablet anywhere that it has to be portable. You can leave it in one room with all the other devices. You can leave it charging there. Maybe the kids, instead of bringing the phone to school, they bring a gab phone, um, which just does texting and calling, or they bring, you know, a smart watch that without that's not connected to a phone, that's self-contained, um, but, you know, they leave the phone in that room, and so that when parents need to get their kids off a device, instead of grabbing the device and causing, you know, from the hands and having a potential power struggle, you're just getting them to leave a high dopamine zone and go to perhaps a low dopamine zone. Like we talked about not having a, a phone in the room at night when you're sleeping. That could be a low dopamine zone with no other devices. Um, so cues are important. We talked about modeling too. and that, and that, uh, And then I also talk a lot about parents having Uh, a balance between the two extremes of, of parenting, you know, the, 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 uh, micromanaging, policing, all the screen time, and then you get into the trouble that that caller said where, you know, the kids don't know how to self-regulate, especially as they get older, and the other extreme of parenting, which is, you know, just completely enabling everything, just letting the kids do whatever they want, you know, throwing your hands up, and and all the... And so both of those extremes create a lot of problems. I try to have parents have a balance in their approach, to and to come up with rules by working with their kids and have consistent limit-setting, com- consistent consequences that are not too severe but are logical and, and make sense. Lucia, we've seen state lawmakers push for more protections for kids on social media
1: apps. What are some regulations or policies you think could
4: help? Uh, yeah, and I think we can look to the UK, which is one of the first countries to, to pass a bill to regulate Uh, there's responsible ways in which we can regulate companies to be age-appropriate by design, playful by design, safe by design. Of course, always being very sensitive to the needs for autonomy, for independence, uh, the evolving capacities of youth. We don't want to be monitoring their conversations. We don't want to go to that space, right? We talk so much about algorithms, regulating algorithms, regulating uh, notifications, regulating who can contact young people, if they're adults, right? Uh, There's uh, responsible ways to do it. And yes, parents play a huge role, teachers do as well, but we're all in this together And, and companies I think can do better and maybe regulation is the way.
1: That's Dr. Lucia Mahis weinberg She's an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Washington, where she leads the International Adolescent Connection and Technology Laboratory. Also with us, Dr. Clifford Sussman, a child and adolescent psychiatrist in Washington, D.C. He focuses on internet and gaming behaviors, and Amanda Linhardt, the head of research at Common Sense Media. She also serves on the technical advisory panel to the American Academy of Pediatrics Center on Social Media and Youth Mental Health. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A.